0: When you're, especially when you're a, a young lawyer, you do not really have time to run around to a bunch of conferences, to sit through a bunch of lectures because the, the pressure to bill and to be working is so high that to do all that stuff basically means you're cutting out family and friends and any sort of small amount of, of free time that you have to go do these extra professional things.
1: Your podcast
0: thank you for having me it's yes. my pleasure
1: of course of course so you and I met on Twitter it's one of my favorite places to meet lawyers I think people really underestimate it and so let's talk about Twitter <laughs> do you sometimes- I
0: am the, I'm of the same opinion by the way just okay, so great. nobody's nobody's <laughs> it like Confused whether we're on the same page here. It's not going to be a debate about that.
1: Okay. All right. Cool. So, what do you use Twitter for? To use it because you're a podcaster? To use it to just see what people are talking about, or, or what?
0: Yeah, it's a little bit of all of it. So, I actually find that Twitter is is a quite handy place to go to get information. Um, it's almost like a news feed for me on topics that are relevant to what I do for a living. Um. So I follow a bunch of people that sort of vary in my space and that's the majority of my Twitter feed. So it's a, my, my practice is a lot of tax and personal wealth and trust. And so I follow a lot of people that do that sort of nerdy stuff. Um, and actually oftentimes when there's something new that comes out, say like a new tax bill or a new court case or something, I frequently see it on Twitter before I see it, on the aggregators that i get through the like legal research sites like your Westlaws or your bloomberg tax or something like that it's it's kind of amazing mm-hmm. and so those more traditional uh aggregator sites are almost always behind in terms of the timing of information from what i get from twitter so i use it a lot for that and then i use it to communicate with other people uh, sort of in my space, I do have a podcast wealth and law podcast and so I use it to communicate with people about that to share episodes uh, from time to time to source people that I might want to have on as as a guest on the episodes and uh, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty fertile place to go really mm-hmm. because it you know it really filters down people once you have your interests, aligned and, and followed, it really does filter people down to like the people who are most active and kind of most engaged on the topics that are important to you. And so in my case, it's professional, but then also for the podcast.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Twitter is definitely one of those hidden gems, which sounds ironic, right? Because everyone's heard of it, but I think mm-hmm. a lot of people, they don't use it the way that you and I are using it. Right. I, I, um, I decided I wanted to record season seven before season six ends. And so I put out a tweet and I was like, Hey, I'm looking for sixteen guests. I've already have seven. Who wants, you know, who wants to talk to me? And I got four people in a day. People were like, Hey, what about me? Wow. What about me? Oh, someone sent this to me. And I was like, Oh, great. <laughs> but like Twitter's funny. Well, all social media is funny. Because it'll show, you know, ten people looked at this, but those ten people shared it. So
0: I also I also find Twitter, um I do I do a lot on LinkedIn as well, and I actually think LinkedIn is an excellent platform. Uh, and I have far more connections through LinkedIn than I do on Twitter. But what I find with Twitter is I get more reach on things that I post on Twitter than I have followers. Or, or at least proportionate to the followers that I have on Twitter versus the reach that I get on LinkedIn yeah and I, I think I get decent reach in LinkedIn but just as a as a proportionate follower to kind of you know impression so to speak um, Twitter actually is better for mm-hmm. me than LinkedIn in a yeah. weird in a weird way
1: <laughs> yeah and I think it's because you and I we both are talking about the law but we're talking about the law and something else, right? I'm talking about the Mm. law and careers or interest. You're talking about the law and wealth. So yeah, it's kind of a little bit broader. So, okay. Twitter did not pay me for all of this. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Me neither. I wish.
1: (laughs) I just wanted to mention that because um, I do think it's really cool that you and I have connected on Twitter. So Brent, you mentioned your podcast, the Wealth and Law Podcast. Will you tell the audience why you created that and what you talk about on that show?
0: Well, I, I created it for a few reasons. The primary reason was that I would sit through um, a lot of like state bar meetings and uh, professional organization meetings. And th- this the topic would almost always turn to something along these lines. Maybe not exactly these words, but I'm paraphrasing. How do we get these young people to be engaged and to be trained up so they can do this thing that we do that we think is so amazing? and they would come up with all sorts of ideas there'd be like a boot camp or something and i would always raise my hand and say well yeah sure do all those things but it has to be free and it has to be easily accessible because when you're especially when you're a, a young lawyer you do not really have time to run around to a bunch of conferences to sit through a bunch of lectures because the the pressure to bill and to be working is so high yeah. That to do all that stuff basically means you're cutting out family and friends and any sort of small amount of, of free time that you have to go do these extra professional things. And then what I could see was that in a lot of senses for for my area of practice, if you wanted to get good information, it was almost exclusively behind a wall, a, a membership wall that if you were in, you got it. If you were out, forget it. Or it was behind a paywall. And so I thought well why not in essence do that content for free and then just put it out so people have access to it including all of these young people that were always talking around saying we need to educate And so I started doing that and then when I was thinking about how do I format this because I didn't really want it to be like a listening to a lecture yeah. I, I listened to a few podcasts that are like that but they're kind of boring. and um, so I thought, well, I go out and have meetings, lunches, coffees, drinks with people in my industry. And inevitably, of course, we'll talk about work and we'll talk about stuff that we're interested in or we're working on and we'll have great conversations and sometimes in depth. And I learned a lot from those conversations. I thought that is the podcast. Yeah. So it's very informal. Um, I Sometimes I have guests on, sometimes I don't, sometimes it's just me and it's primarily just Informal conversations with people who know what they're talking about. And I have found that when you do that, good information comes out because okay. people know, like they know their they're material. They don't need to spend hours and days uh, prepping and preparing outlines and PowerPoint slides and all this other stuff that goes into a normal continuing education course.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that those were kind of my primary uh, motivations. There is a there is a slight selfish part of it
1: <laughs> okay the,
0: the first selfish part is um i'm a bit of a busy body i like to be busy my profession is a little bit of a, an obsession i will admit it is a little bit of a hobby and so i very frequently will just kind of have ideas in my head on topics that are relevant to my practice and i just i need to get them out i need some way to get them out i do a lot of writing and speaking but what I find with the podcast is it's a really handy way to just get those ideas out of my brain and to do it fast. Cause again, you don't like you, when you write, you write, and then you edit and you mm-hmm. edit and edit and edit. And if you're a lawyer, you edit like a thousand times cause you're too nervous about the wrong comma. And you know, if you do a presentation, you got to prepare materials and it takes months to plan it. And then you show up and then you get, you know, there's just so much process involved in other in other forms of getting information out. Whereas with a podcast, it's seamless. Yeah. I can hit record, record a podcast, and within 30 minutes it's posted and it's done. And whatever that that idea was, that was sometimes keeping me up at night, just rolling around in my head, it's gone, it's out. And I can kind of move on mentally. So I have a little bit of a selfish angle where I'm literally just trying to like dump ideas out of my brain so I can remain a functioning human. (laughs)
1: say that's selfish. It almost sounds like it's self-care. Like, you know, when you have something on your mind, like got to get milk, got to get milk. So you write it on a piece of paper to stop thinking about it. But for you, you Mm -hmm. record it and then you get to move on. So I think that's a wellness tip.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't really thinking about podcasting as personal wellness, (laughs) but, and I don't think many people would agree, but that, uh, it, it does have that element for me. Yeah. Of course. I, I use the content because of Kind of my primary focus of really like putting out good information that's helpful to people then then of course the onus is on me to try to disseminate the information so there that comes in two different fashions one is having uh having the content to begin with so doing the podcast regularly enough to have the content so that i can then share it and then having a big enough catalog where it's meaningful and then the second part is it means i do need to be active and have active connections through the means and modes that humans use to communicate, which right now is basically social media. So I have to be active on Twitter. I have to be active on LinkedIn to maintain those connections, to feed those algorithms. And then I have the podcast content to help to fill those those pipes, to keep those connections active so that the information is getting pushed out to the people that I want, want to have it. Occasionally I get work from the podcast. Honestly, if I never got a phone call, um, from people who listen to the podcast, it really wouldn't matter. I have like a real for real, uh, law practice. (laughs) Um, so like I have a day job, so I don't, I don't need to monetize the podcast in that way. I think naturally it helps. It helps you to main maintain connections in this Mm -hmm. sort of virtual sense that we all maintain connections. And so in that way it probably helps professionally but i would see most of those connections anyways we would meet up for lunch and coffee or whatever yeah so it's not essential for my practice in that way but i'm but it does help it helps on that kind of maintaining those relationships side
1: yeah so when i was preparing for this interview i was looking at your biography and mm-hmm. you have so many public speaking like appearances. And then when you're not public speaking, you're either being co-chair of an event or you're writing. Would you consider yourself to be a creative person?
0: I, I, I think I would think of myself more as an, an academic person. Really? Okay. Um, and may, and I, I guess what I mean by that is I appreciate the theory. And I think creative people sometimes do appreciate the theory. It's not always so practical and, you know, it doesn't, everything doesn't have to boil down to dollars and cents right and black and white things so i think in that sense yes a true creative who can actually you know do nice artwork no but yeah uh but certainly an an academic person i just have an academic itch that i i have to scratch and i i have a sort of romanticized view of the profession of law that i view it as as an actual as a profession first and foremost which means that what you really are doing. It's not, yes, it's a business. It runs on cash. Like there's no question. Yeah. But the actual application of it is service to other people and solving other people's problems, whatever it takes to solve those problems. And then doing things that you think will better society through the skills that you have. That's a profession in my mind. And I think inherently being a lawyer is those things, at least in my, from my point of view, totally aside from the actual business side, like there has to be a business side. And so the, the writing, the speaking and the conferences and stuff, all of that kind of helps me on fulfilling this romantic idea of the profession that I have. Okay.
1: (laughs) So where did you get that romantic idea from? Was it cultivated in law school? Was it cultivated when you started practicing or what?
0: It was yeah a little bit of both I think because I I've always enjoyed uh, reading and writing and sort of philosophy and theory these are not practical things yeah like none of these things are practical but I find them very interesting and you know thinking about big thoughts and, and so I've always been drawn to that when I when I was in law school um, they required us to take a federal income tax class I had no interest whatsoever in tax, but so I was like, I'm gonna take it as quickly as possible. That was my my first year of second, my first semester of second year. Yeah. So I take the basic federal income tax class and I loved it. And what I loved about it was that it was a topic that number one was very practical in, in some sense, cause there was like, it was a very specific application of like this dollars and cents things, but also it was so vast that it, cut, it touched on almost every topic. And it in fact, because of its vastness, there's tremendous amounts of vagary. Hmm. And that vagary piece and that utility piece kind of made me think like, wow, I finally found a thing that takes this love I have of these like weird sort of theories and big picture ideas that are not very helpful to humanity. And it kind of marries it with something that actually can be helpful to humanity. You can still have the one and you don't, you know, you don't have to abandon the one to do the other. And so then I took every tact class I could. And, uh, and that's all I've ever, I have no other skills. I'm like, I'm barely a lawyer. (laughs) Like I barely, I'm not even sure that I could like pass the bar. I don't know anything about criminal law and criminal procedure or constitutional law and all that stuff that you have to know for the bar exam. I have long since forgotten all of that. Um, And so I have this one skill. But anyways, it kind of, it developed out of this in in law school being confronted with something that finally seemed to match up a reality of like, you have to have a job that people will pay you to do. Mm -hmm. Plus, I still have this academic interest of mine and like, can the two go together? And I found this thing in the law that allowed the two to go together.
1: Yeah. So I think that's a really... For one, it's a really romantic way of discussing tax law, <laughs> 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 because like we can hear how excited you are, how passionate you are about it. But um, I never took like a tax law course. So I one of my questions was, how did you get into this practice? So mm-hmm. I love that your school made you do it. Um, now I'm sure you were in school and in class with people who hated it, right? They just did enough to get through the oh, course. Yeah. Um, you've actually yeah. gone on to practice tax law. You also do estate law and things like that. Do you love the practice as much as you love learning about it in school?
0: Yeah, I think I like the practice even better than school. Uh, okay. number one, it's far more lucrative to be in practice than to be sitting in classes I've learned. Yeah. And, uh, so that helps. But the, the reality is that working with clients, cause my, my practice is, is I think I jokingly told you it's, it's rich people law. Yes. Um, so my clients are, are wealthy families and about half of those are international families in some fashion, you know, either family or investments here, but they're from abroad or the reverse Americans with family or investments abroad. So there's a lot of variety and I get to interact with all kinds of different people, which is very different from sitting in class in law school, right? You're just, you may, maybe you're reading different, cases and it's interesting with the different characters in the cases but they're not real humans and i find in practice the interaction with the wide variety of of people is what keeps it really interesting because everything is every day is different every little every problem is unique and that really keeps me interested
1: yeah so tax law the very first guest of this podcast was actually an accountant and she actually had a tax law practice on the side. So I think it's mm-hmm. funny. Um, it's taken like 80 episodes to get back to another. <laughs> there's <tax lawyer. laughs> not a
0: lot of us. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and definitely not a lot of you that enjoy it to the point where you want to talk about it on a podcast. So, I would go
0: say though, sorry, not to cut you off there, um, Kyla, but the even you know setting aside the the taxi which i know is not for everybody which is totally fine by me yeah. because that means i will always have a job um it sort of filters you know it sort of filters the market down mm-hmm. from a purely business perspective because uh, i am a i am keenly aware of the business side of of practicing law too it filters the market down but i think any any area of the law that someone is interested in or is practicing in you're almost always best served to become as niched down as you can in, in niches that have utility. Okay. So not just floofy stuff, but like niches that have real utility. So, you know, I do tax law, which is itself uh, basically a specialty within the law. It's a special expertise within the law. Well, that it is very, very broad. So no tax attorney knows everything. So then you're already forced into a niche within that niche. And then within that, I really only am working with private individuals. So then it gets snitched down even further. And then when I get into the international stuff, it's like that's another tiny sliver of that tiny sliver. Yeah. And it just turns out that in any sort of area of law, when you do that, the practice kind of from a, a business perspective and developing a practice perspective actually becomes easier. And what I mean by that is what, Again, if you pick something that has utility, it becomes easier because what happens is that people who, maybe in the slightly broader categories, are your competitors, in the much narrower category, they become your referral sources. And yeah. it has turned out in my career that a lot of my referral sources are actually other lawyers and other lawyers who do trust and states work, even though I do trust and states work. Yeah. So because they may have a unique case that has, you know, some international piece that they don't want to touch. So then I get, you know, they I get the call from them to handle those cases. Again, even though in, in everything else being equal, we're basically competitors. And I think every every little area of law is that way, which is part of what I think is so uh interesting about the practice of law, is that when you when you kind of try to really distill down like what does each individual lawyer really care about and find interesting there probably is some corner in there somewhere because the law is so vast that would fill that need
1: yeah and to just dig a little bit deeper into that i recently discovered this week someone explained niche to me in a very very simple way and they said it's a targeted Mm. audience with a specific intention so even if you think about your practice you know brent nelson works with um high income international families to, you know, keep them out of tax trouble or ensure that right. they're, hold on. I have it right here. Okay. <laughs> Britt Nelson works with high income international families to ensure that they have multi multi-generational continuity of their resources. Right. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause yep. I saw in your biography that you were like, that's literally what you do. <laughs> you create family organizations, for multi-general, multi-generational continuity. And so I think it makes sense that once you have niched down, people would then refer to you because I feel like the competition is gone. Like literally what you said. It's not, oh, right. I do state law. He does a state law, but it's like he has a specialty here. So of course I would help him out. And then that means if you have a case, you can also then refer someone too. You're like, oh, I thought this was going to be a big international thing. It's not now I can send it on if you wanted to, right? So it makes the practice bigger because now everybody is like working together to say, why don't you just focus on the stuff that you really love? I can do the same thing and there's enough for all of us to eat, right?
0: Absolutely. And you're you're 100% <laughs> correct in that it goes both ways, right? It's It filters people coming in, but it filters people going out as well. So now, yeah. you know, I know yeah. that I don't do real estate stuff. And I <laughs> yeah. have no interest in trying to do real estate stuff. I can tell you what the tax rules are for foreign owners of US real estate, but I'm not going to do your real estate deal. So yeah. I already know that because I have this niche. So when those referrals come to me, I just deflect them off to somebody else. There's okay. not even a question. Yeah. I think there's a there's a, a tendency to feel like uh, you need to be full service. And that while some people can' do that I'm, I'm not suggesting that that's impossible and and depending on the size of of uh city that you're in for example you know it can be in a small town where the needs are just such that you have to kind of be, be a dabbler in lots of different things um, but for the most part you should when you're a lawyer you should not be a general practitioner and so you're already forced into a niche which means you already have to filter out who's coming in and then who goes out Yeah. And so, you know, the more and more and more niched you get, the more, you know, the more fine that knife cut is.
1: Yeah. So, Brent, I'm really enjoying this. So we're going to we're going to go a little bit more. (laughs) How did you decide that you wanted to specifically work with international families? I know you said you do some on the side that's not all of it is not international. But were you working in tax law? And then you were like, oh, I really like these stories. I really like these. Families, and so you just kind of leaned into it and started to seek out more international families.
0: It, it was kind of a combination of things. I uh, had sort of had some extended gap year slash years um, in college abroad, and so I okay. I sort of had that that international thing already. And then um, I was I was always the the youngest person. And nobody knew anything about anything international. And so whenever a case came in that had an international element to it, it ended up on my desk. And so I handled some of those cases and had to just sort of figure out how to do it, Uh, which meant I had to do a lot of self-education and I found them very interesting. And so then I started reading all the articles I could find on the topic. And then I started going to conferences on the topic. And then I started forcing myself to write and speak on the conference or on the on the topic at conferences and so it just sort of snowballed from there and then as soon as the word started getting out that I knew something about this weird little corner of the world <laughs> all of a sudden I had a bunch of clients who needed that help because nobody else knew anything about it so it just sort of yeah. it snowballed on itself but it really began with I already kind of had that international thing personally and then when the cases started hitting my desk it was interesting and I just kept digging yeah. and digging and digging. Okay.
1: So to the audience that's listening, because this podcast is all about young lawyers. So either five years or less practicing or law students. So I hope what you're hearing is that you will always be learning. Even when you're done with school, you'll always be like, what am I interested in? Or you'll still be digging deeper to say, okay, I have this degree, but now what? right? It's not like getting your law degree is the final destination. It's literally the launch pad. (laughs) Okay. Cause Brent just told us he is, he's constantly reading and researching and doing his own personal studies so that he could become an expert. So, okay. I love that. Um,
0: 100% agree. 100% agree. I actually don't even know that you can truly practice law without doing it. Um, and I, I'm constantly learning new things, even in areas that I think I know a lot about, i will still learn new things one, one of the um one of the habits that i got into early in my career which is a good habit and i was told to do which was good advice was anything anytime i would sort of be confronted with uh, a reference to a statute or a case or regulation that i would stop and go read it while because i'm doing most mostly transactional work so we're talking about transactional type documents. But if I see a reference to a code section or a a regulation section, I stop and I go read it. And still to this day, I will stop and go read sections that I've read a 100 times. And half the time when I read them, I'll see something in there that I didn't remember being in there, and I'll learn something new. And I just force myself to do that constantly. That's my personal practice. I think it's excellent practice to really learn an area in depth.
1: Yeah, I do, too. I do that a lot, but I do that with, like, fiction novels. <laughs> if someone mentions a mm. book or, like, they're like, oh, we got in the car and the song is playing. I'm like, what's that song? Um, so that's a really good practice for you to do in while practicing law. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so, Brent, there's just there's one thing that's just been running through my head. You live in Arizona sure. and I don't think of Tucson mm-hmm. as being an international city. I don't I don't know why. I just don't. I guess because it's not New York. It's not California. Um, does your location not necessarily matter when it comes to tax law or, you know, international families and in estates?
0: Yeah, it, surely it would be easier if I was in New York or LA or San Francisco. I mean, there's just more pe- more international money in places like that than yeah. where I am, which admittedly is literally in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by rocks and sand really? <laughs> and brush and rattlesnakes. So yeah. I am fully aware of where I'm uh, geologically, geographically located, but it, it, what has turned out to be the case is that here in particular, even beyond Tucson, just sort of in, in Arizona in general, and then I, I'm licensed in Colorado too. So if you sort of okay. lump Colorado in there, there's a lot of international families from Canada and Mexico so the plurality of my practice is working with those families and then beyond that working with a bunch of other families who are from latin america and then beyond them there's another sliver that's just sort of everywhere and they usually have some connection here uh, or they have a connection with somebody that i know and their issues in the u.s they can be state specific but a lot of times with international families, their issues are actually federal issues. Yeah. And so for them, it doesn't matter so much where I am. And we're not going to meet constantly because they live somewhere else. And if you know, if we happen to be in the same place, we'll be very glad to to meet and go out to dinner and, and have a nice chat. But for the most part, we communicate virtually because that's what's convenient for them. So they really don't care where I am. I don't really care where they are. And so it works great. So they it it's quite convenient. From that perspective that the clients are so scattered that where I am physically becomes nominal as a consideration.
1: Okay and was this the case prior to 2020 or has this developed over the last couple years?
0: I think people have gotten more used to Mm -hmm. communicating virtually but it was always the case. The biggest difference that's happened since 2020 is I, I no longer feel like I'm constantly the IT department when we have video conferences. You know, everybody knows how to do a video conference at this point. Yeah. Whereas at the beginning of 2020, yeah, I was the IT department. Before that, I was the IT department.
1: That's really funny. Okay. So, Brent, I just have one last question here for you. What advice would you give to new, to new lawyers or law students about what they can do with their law degree? When they are
0: in the practice of law. Yeah, I mean the the world is is wide and bright. I think if you have a law degree, um, I, I am not one of the believers. For example, that uh, technology is going to come in and replace lawyers. The I think the, the thing that is the most important if you're going to be a lawyer is developing good relationships with the, the people who either are the, the types of clients that you would want or the people who can connect you to the types of clients that you would want. And I would focus, if I if I was starting again, trying to build a law practice, I would focus all my time and attention on that. and And then the one thing that I probably have struggled with the most in my career that's not so good and so people should do better than me, is just being patient because when you're dealing with humans and that's that's really what we're dealing with when you're practicing law uh whether you're representing corporations or or people um those those relationships take time and the sort of fruits of being in those relationships from a private law perspective it takes time to develop and so it's far more enjoyable if you don't treat everybody like they're actually a potential client but just treat them like they're normal humans and just be friends with them and it will turn out that if you do that number one people will like you more because most people don't like to be sold to and number two um in the end you'll find what you're looking for whatever that little niche area is in the law you'll find it because you will develop these close personal relationships and so from kind of like a, a practice development perspective, totally, totally aside from all this stuff we were talking about and digging into the different areas of law and learning, it. of course you got to do that, but you've got to have those those human relationships. And if you if you develop those human relationships, it really, in my opinion, doesn't matter what the technology is behind you, because uh, yeah. those relationships are the key. Treat
1: people like people and be patient.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I like it, <laughs> and I think that Basically. makes sense. Because if you're not selling to them, if you're just treating them like a person, if you ask, how are you, and you actually care, that incorporates the be patient, right? You got to wait to see what's going to come out of it. You don't have an angle. I like it. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, And the same goes for being on Twitter. Okay. Treat people like people. (laughs) (laughs) Don't sell to people on Twitter. I mean, there's a sign. There's an art to it. But honestly, if you were just actually talking to people and treating them like people, it'll help. So. I have a
0: few Twitter pet peeves. I have a few other Twitter pet peeves. One of them is do not begin anything that you post on Twitter or anywhere else for that matter and say, here is a fill in the blank thing that no one is talking about. And then you post it. Like, I promise you someone's talking about it and you're probably not so insightful that you are the only person that's ever invented this idea. So don't do that. That won't make you look good on Twitter.
1: Yeah, definitely not. I see that a lot on LinkedIn too. That's like the worst. Yeah.
0: LinkedIn's getting that way.
1: You know, people are like, I didn't have a good day. And you open it. It's like, I had a great day. And it's like, oh, okay, that's a waste of my time. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I didn't know where you were going. No, that, I, can, so.
0: no I can. I completely agree with you about, uh, about Twitter, that you should be patient. Just, you know, post, respond, um, be engaging. Uh, you, you can be nice to people. People will be rude. You know, the more you the more you post and the more that you're out there on social media, of course, people will be rude. Just be nice back. You don't have to be rude yeah. back. Yeah. Um, if you do that, it'll be more a more enjoyable experience.
1: Mm-hmm. And honestly, that's a life lesson, right? People are rude at the library. People are people. You have no idea what their day was. So just treat people like people. Be patient. <laughs> that yeah. might be the title of yep. this episode. Yeah. So. All right, cool. Thank you so much, Brent. You have a great day, bye.
0: Thank you, Uh, my pleasure, thank you.